Sao Bona Sisterhood. <laughs> Wonderful to be together this evening and uh, just to have all of you here. Thank you for coming. If you knew that you were running faster than love could catch you, would you slow down? If you knew you were running faster than love could catch you, would you slow down? When we were little, we used to play a game called Kissing Catchers. Here's a little girl, Marie. Don't want to give you any ideas. Don't you look at me past your mom. And I had an older brother, and he had one or two rather dishy little friends. <laughs> and when some of the boys were on, I would run as fast as I could. But when one particular boy was on, I would just like, oh, my shoe. Oh, I tripped, sorry. Oh, God. oh, you caught me. Oh, again. <laughs> because it's good to be caught and kissed, right? Sometimes we forget to slow down so that love can catch us. Because it's important to slow down if you want love to catch you. We, we need love. We wake up every morning wishing that we were that we were loved, wanting to be loved, wanting to understand love more. And yet so often, we're running too fast in our heads, in our lives, for love to catch us. I wrote this a little while back, a couple of years ago. My darling daughter touches my back, and I recoil in irritation. She's asking gently if I'm okay. I'm not, but I brush her off annoyed. Why? I'm living in my head, in my thoughts, and her touch is the intrusive touch of reality. It is a whispered, come down, come down, come down out of your head, out of your thoughts. Touch earth, turn around and touch the girl. Feel the material world, there is love to be received. People you could reach out to, would you slow down, simmer down long enough for love to catch you? So often we, we live in the fixations of our personality and we allow our, our egos, our need to be something to drive us faster than love can catch us. And we're, we're living in our heads, we're, we're running after the, the desires of our hearts, we're running after our fears. And it's not just the tasks, the busyness of the tasks in our diary, it's not just uh, the busyness of the demands in our lives, but it's the busyness in our head that makes it impossible for love to catch us. Soulborn Sisterhood is about seeing others, and it's about being seen. It's about allowing ourselves to be seen, because it's only when you're caught and kissed that you get to run after somebody else with a kiss to give. That's how the game works. It's only when you're caught and kissed that you have a kiss to give to others. Love has a pace, I'm learning, and it's slower than we think. To be available to love, to receive it and to give it, is a slower pace than we think. And we're going to be talking tonight about the pace of love, living at the pace of love, slowing down and becoming present enough to receive love and becoming present enough to give love. We want to see the one that sees us. We're going to start tonight with a story because I love story time. You're welcome to close your eyes if you like. You're welcome to keep them open. But will you come with me to an ancient Samaritan village called Tzachar? Not a town, really, more of a village. The houses are single-story, flat, the color of the dust, 
flat roofs. And for some reason, Jesus has decided to walk through Samaria on his way to his next area that he's going. And it's just after midday, and his disciples decide they, they need to go into the village to, to get some food for lunch. But Jesus, he decides to stay behind at the well that's just outside of the village. His disciples are used to this. Jesus takes every opportunity to be alone with his father. He seems to punctuate his ministry with moments of alone time, moments to recalibrate and make sure that he is in step with the I am. And so they go off into the village and Jesus is lying in the shade. And suddenly he sees a woman coming up out of the village and she catches his attention. It's curious because it's, it's, just after, it's just after noon. And she's alone. Normally women don't walk to the well alone. It's dangerous to be out of the village on your own without anybody to protect you, to see if something happens to you. And it's hot now. And she catches his attention. And because he's slowed down to the pace of his father, he starts to recognize that there is a change in the atmosphere. There's something about this girl that's caught his attention, and he watches her walking up. And he realizes she's, she's not in a hurry either. She's obviously, this is not an emergency. This is normal for her to come at this time of day on her own to fetch water. And his heart starts to beat a little faster as he realizes this is going to be a God moment. And she walks up to the well, and he wants something from her. There's something in her that he wants. There's a thirst that is awakened in him as he looks at her. And you'd be forgiven for thinking, perhaps this is a man looking at a woman. But it's more than that. It's different from that. But there is something in her that he wants. And he stands up and takes a step out of this shade and says, I want something from you. Would you give me a drink? And she gets a fright because she wasn't expecting him. She didn't see anybody in the shade. And she responds with her first line of defense, which is space, to step back. Is she in danger? But it doesn't look like it from the look on his face. And so she takes the time. He's given her his attention, and she stops and gives him her attention. And she looks at him, and she realizes, this man is a Jew. It's inappropriate for a man to be speaking to a woman. It's completely unheard of for a Jewish man to be speaking to a Samaritan woman. And she points it out. She says to him, you're a Jew. <laughs> I'm a Samaritan woman. And it's full of the subtext of, why aren't you treating me like a dog? And Jesus, he looks at her, and he starts to smile. His heart is still beating really loud. And he says to her, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. And he says it funny like that. Not if you knew who I was, but if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she thinks, okay, this guy's not a physical danger to me, but what does he want? And so she steps into her, her next way of defense, her next defensive mechanism, and she puts on the persona she's used to, flirtatious and available. And she says to him, okay, I'll bet. How are you going to draw water? You don't even have a bucket. This well is deep, you know. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug it? 
And he says to her, this well, Jacob's well, you come here every day? The water doesn't satisfy. I'm talking about something different. The water I'd give you, if you drank from my water, you'd never thirst again. (laughs) She laughs. She's having a little bit of fun. She's got that persona up. She knows what what she's engaging through. She's comfortable in this space. (laughs) She laughs at him and she says, okay, I'd love that water. Give it to me, please. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says something that she wasn't expecting. He says, go call your husband, and then I'll give it to you. And she's put on the back foot because it's not the kind of counter she thought. The persona she had been using, the defense mechanism she'd been using, all of a sudden he'd cut under it because no longer it was a man and a woman, but it was a man wanting to speak to a woman's husband. And she's caught a little bit off guard, but she decides to to carry on down the same line because so often when we're caught off guard, we, we don't pivot quite as quickly as we should. So she sticks with the same persona and she says, I have no husband. And he says, I know, you've had five. And the man you're now living with is not your husband. It's like in that first statement, go get your husband. He had taken hold of the curtain that she'd been hiding behind. And in the second statement, you have, no, you have had five husbands and the sixth one you're not even living with. He'd ripped it down and she stood exposed. And she had a choice to make. Was she going to run? He'd exposed her deepest shame. She'd been flirting and now she was shown to be no better than a whore. But it wasn't her only defense. She had other personas to hide behind. She was a clever girl, really smart, actually. She had intellectualism. And so she just stepped, sidestepped into her next one. And she started a religious debate. She says, okay, I see you're a prophet. You know stuff. And she started opening up an age-old religious debate that Jews had often had with Samaritans about where people should worship in the temple and on the mountain nearby in Samaria. But Jesus, he he hasn't changed his look. There's no judgment on his face. He hasn't recoiled at the idea that she has five, six men. There's just a gentle presence to him. He stays with her in the conversation with just a presence. And he, he looks at her and he says, you know what? It's not about where you worship. It's not about the external place. It's about the internal place that you worship from. It's about the heart that you worship from. And he cuts through her last offense of intellectualism straight through to her and he says, it's about worshiping from who you really are. Not from your egos, not from the different personas that you put on. It's about worshiping from who you really are. And it's worked. (laughs) He's got through it all. She's not only beautiful and smart, She's also really brave. She doesn't run. She stands, her deepest heart exposed. And she nods and she says, it's confusing. I don't really get it. But one day, one day, there will be an anointed one sent from heaven. We've been promised by God that one day 
a Messiah will come. And he, he'll explain it all to us. He'll be able to know us and who we really are. And he'll be able to reach through to us. And in this moment, Jesus, she's looked down and he longs to reach out and touch her face and lift her chin to look in his eyes because he's been given the go-ahead from heaven to tell her something about himself he has never told anyone before. And his heart is pounding and gently with his, with his manner, with his gaze, with his voice, he manages to get her to lift her eyes and he says to her, I am he. I am the anointed one that you have been waiting for. I am he. And she's looking at him, looking at her. His attention has not left her for a second as every veil and every defense and persona has been ripped off her, but like gently. And there's just this, this radical acceptance of her as she stands there. There's this affection, as he can hear in her he, she can hear in his voice the, the touch that he longs to give her. And she wonders, is it true? Could it be true? Could the thing I've been waiting for my whole life, the one I've been waiting for my whole life, be standing in front of me? And just at this moment, the disciples arrive back from the village, and they've got food, and they see their, their rabbi, their teacher, and he's talking with a Samaritan woman, and it's like all kinds of appropriate, and he has not obviously realized the reputational damage that this is going to cause him. And, but they can sense there's, like, there's lightning bolts in the air, and they don't dare say anything. They just stand there. And she stands there, and Jesus stands there, and they're staring at each other, and all of a sudden she realizes that she's been caught, and she's been kissed. And it's her turn. And she leaves her water jar and she runs back to the village. She runs back to the place of her shame. And she runs and she skips and she calls and she says, I found a man who knows everything about me. And I think he's the Messiah. I think he might really be the one. And the disciples are caught in this awkward moment as Jesus is watching this lady go skipping and running and shouting out down the hill towards her village, and they don't know who's going to break the silence. And eventually, one of them says, we brought food. <laughs> and Jesus, he doesn't take his eyes off of her. He is, <laughs> this is the one he's revealed himself to for the very first time. He is so, so focused on her, and he just shakes his head, and he says to them without looking, I am completely satisfied. I've had a meal you know nothing about. And that's how the story ends. What takes a woman from being so ashamed that she has no sisters? She, she doesn't get to come to a sisterhood evening like this. I don't know if any of you have arrived here alone, and it's weird for you. You're not used to people seeing you. Well, she was that lady. She was not used to people seeing her with anything nice to say, unless it was a man who wanted something from her. 
And she goes running into the village and <laughs> naked in, the, in, in every sense of the word that matters. And she goes running into there and she says, he knows. He knows about the husbands. He knows about every single one. And he still loves me. Come, come and see. Come and see the man. I think he's the one. I think he is the anointed one. And the whole village follow her back up to Jesus. <laughs> the whole village follow after her, wondering, she is totally acting out of character. She never draws attention to herself like this. Maybe he might just be the anointed one. What I love about that story is that he notices her, that he gives her his full attention, that he wants something, he's thirsty. But she also, she's come to the well thirsty. She had water to give, to get. And Jesus drinks from her. And she drinks from Jesus. And they both leave the well satisfied, but they've forgotten about the water at the bottom of the well. That is the beauty of an encounter with Jesus, satisfied by her devotion. He thirsts for our devotion. He thirsts for our attention. He thirsts for our acceptance like we thirst for his. He thirsts for our affection like he thirsts, like we thirst for his. A psalmist writes, writes it like this. I'm ready to tell my story of failure. I'm no longer smug in my sin. God, help me. I want some wide open space in my life. I'm ready to tell my story of failure. I'm no longer smug in my sin. God help me. I want, I need, I must have some wide open space in my life. And she had got to that point. I'm ready to tell the stories of my failure. It doesn't matter. I'm so desperate for the wide open space. I'm so desperate for the connection, for the love, to be connected with God, to be connected with others. I'm so desperate to be living in a life of love and of wide open space that I couldn't care less. Who knows about my failures? I'm no longer smug in my sin. Have you ever been this desperate that you did not know, you no longer cared about the means to the end. You just had to get to the end. You just couldn't be bothered anymore. You so badly want what's there that you really decency be damned getting there. I gave natural birth, and that experience, it was like that for me. I, I remember having a gown on forwards and a gown on backwards. I don't know why they were putting so many gowns on me. And whatever else, you know, the what's this thing called? Pressure, blah, blah, and all those things. And the straps over here to measure the contractions. And I remember just that moment being like, get it off me. Like, I, I'm trying to have a baby here. Can you just get all of this stuff off of me? I've got somewhere to go. And I remember the nurses being like, well, you know, we've actually signed a thing and you have to fill in a form when you leave the hospital that says, the nurses really respected your privacy. I'm like, I, I could not give a stuff right now. Privacy be damned. I have a baby to have. You know what I mean? Just like, just like I have somewhere to go, and I really, really don't care anymore other than that I get there. And she got to that place. And we, are we hungry enough for a life of love? If you knew that you were running fast enough, too fast for love to catch you, would you slow down? It cost her a lot, hey? She was very exposed. It's not easy to 
to receive love. It's not easy. It's not easy to give love. It's easier to live in the defenses of our personas and our egos and our, those identities that we create for ourselves. I want to talk this evening about three things, take three points out of the story of what love looks like, what it is to, to walk at the pace of love. We need to have time to see the attention that they gave one another. We need to have time to hear, to really know a person, to radically accept them. And we need to have time to touch, to show our affection and, and unrestrained affection. And those will be our, our three points for this evening. So if we just look at the first one, I love the fact that Jesus would have seen her coming, that she had to walk a long way to get there, and that he would have been thinking how he was going to engage at that moment, because he was, he was ready for that. He, he was present in the moment. And being present in the moment, he looked at her, and he prepared for his engagement with her. So often we are so busy that we give ourselves no time to prepare for the people that we're going to see. We rush, we set our diaries meeting for, to meeting without the margin in between of time to prepare for what we're going into and time to prepare, time to prepare when we come out of it. That we want to be present actually before we see people. We want to be present in the moment, actually there. And we want to be present afterwards so that we can remember what was discussed and put whatever needs to happen into play. I remember when our kids were young, uh, I, I found it very demanding for my attention when I would arrive home. And so I would stop in the driveway and take a moment, take a few minutes to change gears and to be present so that when I walked through the door, and my children scrambled for my attention, I would be there. I wouldn't be in the meeting I'd just come from, but I would be present in the meeting that I'm in, in the engagement that I'm currently having. To walk at the pace of love means having the time to see. Thoughtful attention. Thought going in. Thought coming out. It took for Jesus, even Jesus, <laughs> Regular moments with his father. Regular moments to recalibrate. Have you ever gone for a walk or a run with a friend or a running partner who runs just a little bit faster than you? It's not fun at all. It's like in the beginning you think, yeah, sure, it's just, it's just a tiny bit. But as you're running, it, when they outrun you, you lose your breath entirely. And it's just not at all fun. To run, some of us also run too slowly. <laughs> we, we pace ourselves down a bit, and we're running so slowly that we're, we're falling asleep at the wheel, and we're not paced by love. <laughs> but Jesus took time to be in the, in the present with the God whose name is I am. Not I was, I will be, I am. If you want to meet with God, I can tell you this for free. He only ever meets with people in the present. For, for sure, for sure. If you are sitting and you decide after this evening, you all fired up and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and have a devotion that you haven't had for a month. Beautiful. Do it. I'm telling you now, 
that if you are in your day ahead or in the evening past, he's not there. <laughs> he only ever meets with people in the present. He is the I am. When you still yourself to the present, you will find him. He will be there. And Jesus did this regularly. He stilled himself to the present and then paced himself by the ticking clock, <laughs> by the present. Not waiting there, not stopping there, not running ahead, but pacing himself by the great I am. And because of that, he was aware of the change in the atmosphere as, as the lady arrived, as that woman appeared and is on the horizon. He, he sensed something. In, in the presence of the I am, he sensed that there was a shift, that there was something that was happening. Love has a pace. Attention takes time, time to see. I was in a neighborhood the other day and there was a sign up there, such a clever sign, that said, drive like your children and pets play here. It was brilliant. Drive like your children and pets play here. Drive at a speed that you would be able to see, that you would be able to notice and adjust if necessary. Can we, can we stop long enough to, to recognize the attention of the Spirit of God on us? And can we stop long enough to put our attention on those He's given us to love? That we take a moment when, when a sister walks in the room. We take a moment to see. A moment to see. You know, there's some people that are just so great at that. They see you and they go... They look right through you. They can see that there's something because they've seen for real. Can we be those people? And it starts with being seen. It starts with allowing God to put his attention on us and for us to, to, to accept that attention and to respond in attention. Once we're caught and kissed, we have a kiss to give. Secondly, going at the pace of love means we have time to hear time to hear what's really going on, time to, to hear what's really happening in someone's heart. Jesus looked at her with a radical acceptance as she said, this, I have no husband and, and that, I want to have a religious debate with you. He had time to really hear and his presence with her was just a radical acceptance. I want to ask you, beautiful ladies whom I love, will you take time to sit with yourself? And radically accept whatever you notice about yourself. To sit in your own presence, watch your thoughts, think about what you're, what you're doing, what you're feeling, and to just radically accept it. Acceptance doesn't have to mean approval. I understand that there'll be things that one part of you think the other part of you really should not be doing. It's okay. Can you accept the part that really shouldn't be doing that, and this little bossy part over here that's <laughs> being a little bit judgmental right now. <laughs> Can you accept all the parts in a radical acceptance of just who you really are? As Jesus looked at her, he literally just said, it's true, you've, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. <gasps> Shame on you. He didn't add that. He just said, I see you. There was something in the way he saw her that mean, made her not run away. Something in the way 
he looked at her and accepted her in that moment, that made her think, oh, I'm going to give this guy a chance. <laughs> like, I want to stay. I want to hear what more he has to say. The pace of love has been something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And it particularly came to my attention when Richard and I were away last year. We took some time, got away for, for two, just over two weeks, just the two of us. I know, crazy, right? I pray that Jesus would bless you all with the same. <laughs> Receive it. And the point was a recalibration. Just like Jesus would recalibrate himself regularly, we like a little bit worse machines than Jesus, so we needed a long recalibration time. And while we were recalibrating, we were taking a walk on this beautiful, long beach, and we saw this guy walking towards us. And he looked a little bit like Jesus, like he had the long hair and the, <laughs> the, the slops, and we are just like, hey, babe, Jesus is here on this beach. Like, how cool. I knew there was something special about this place. <laughs> and as he walked to us, like, there was just such a cool presence about him. Like, it was just like, just like there, you know, just, I'm just in the present. I don't have to change, change everything. I don't have to force anything. I'm just here. And we watched him, and he walked past, and I noticed that his, his footprints in the sand were really unusual, the, the, the marking that he'd made. Was, was weird because normally when I walk, like I can sometimes scuff the sand because I'm like marching, can you tell? Uh, heel first, <laughs> marching, and, I, and then put my foot down. But he, he had a scuff mark between his two footprints, but the scuff mark was just before the foot went down. And I tried to imitate it for about five days. It's like, I don't know how. How do people do this? And every day he would walk on the beach, and every day there would be these same markings that, you know, the footprints of Jesus. He has been here this morning. We just, uh, just missed him. And um, eventually, <laughs> I realized what it was, that he was walking at such a chilled pace that his slop was falling off his foot just before he put his foot down. So his slop would catch the sand before he did. <laughs> And I've just been thinking about that a lot and realizing that going at the pace of love allows things to fall off us, like in a cool way. As this woman stood there at the well, she took the time as Jesus, the veil like, oh, naked again. She never ran, like she stayed in that moment. She was brave enough to stand. She was brave enough to be present. And she took the time, and it was a slow enough pace that things could fall off of her. And I wonder if we'll take the time in that moment of the tension of heaven on us to just let things fall off of us as we are radically accepted for who we are, that things would just fall off of us. I wanted to share a little bit of my story. But if I, for those who are new to sisterhood, sisterhood is always like an overshare, just letting you know. Just letting you know, because it's what happens at sisterhood stays at sisterhood, right? <laughs> I, I have had these moments like throughout my life of, of 
wanting to, giving that one line of, I have no husband, not sure if you're going to be further exposed, and then having Jesus just go whoosh and, and expose more in my life. So I remember one uh, not too long ago where there was like, if my life was a garden, there were, there were these, this molehill, and I would like pat it down, and it would keep popping up somewhere else. <laughs> not helpful, because I mean, I, like, I'm supposed to be a pastor and stuff. It's not helpful to have molehills in my garden of my life. <laughs> and I was like a little bit embarrassed about these molehills because they were persistent, and it just kept coming up. So I decided eventually to allow someone to put their attention on it. And so I went and spoke to somebody. Um, at different times in my life, it's been different people. It has been God. It's been a friend. It's been a counselor. But in this time, I, I went and spoke to somebody and said, so this is a little molehill, and it just keeps popping up. And uh, he very kindly, uh, I thought he would come with like a, a trowel. There's like a little mini spade to, to dig up the mole. And instead, he came with a bulldozer. And within days, my life looked like a rubble heap. And I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed that he'd been managed to take, to take this molehill and like up in my life, make me look like, oh, it's just so embarrassed, so ashamed. We all have these things in our lives that, that are not of, not of God. And I want, I want to be able to with you, tell my story of failure, not be smug in my sin, because I want that wide open space. I want to live a life of love. I want you to have permission to live a life of love too. I want you to know that it's okay if there's molehills that might just require foundational treatment. It's okay. Jesus said to her, you've had five husband, six men. Six in the Bible, it's a very relevant number. It's the number that is used throughout Scripture to represent fallen humanity, man. And as people, as girls, we run after husbands as well. I'm not talking for those people who are actually running after physical husbands, that as well. But like we run after husbands Metaphorically speaking, we run after people, things, humanity, fallen humanity to care for us, to husband us. I want to give you the definition of the word husbandry. It means to manage carefully, to cultivate, to care for. People study animal husbandry. This is a, it's a real subject. Husbandry is a thing. So the name husband, it comes from a position of somebody who comes alongside you to, to cultivate your life, to, to manage it with care, careful attention. And we need husbands in that sense of the word. Our, our lives are gardens that, that need to be cultivated, that need to be managed carefully. And we look for husbands all over the place. And I can, I can give you a list of illegitimate husbands that I've looked to in my life for the things that I need, the, the deep desires of my heart. I think of performance. I've looked to performance as a husband. I think when I was, for many years, I felt like I didn't have, 
value just in who I was. Like if I just rocked up at your house and was just there, it, it wouldn't be enough. Like I'd need to, to have something to offer. Like, ta-da, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like some success, something, some performance to offer in order to have value. And that was a husband for me. I think I've, I've been husband, husbanded by my competence. I remember hearing jokes about women being a ball and chain, and I thought, I'll never be that. I'll never be a handbrake. I'll never be a ball and chain. I'll be capable. I'll be competent. And so when I feel weak or I've been injured or there's something in my life that's made me feel like I can't contribute as much or more than the person next to me, even if that person is my husband, it has made me feel like less than, you know? I've allowed these things to, to husband me. I think at times I've allowed chocolate to husband me <laughs> and cups of tea and glasses of wine to, 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 to protect me, to make me feel cared for, to make me feel like I'm in the moment, like some, something, someone will look after me. We all are driven by desires and by fears. We're driven by the desire to be loved, to be seen, to be valuable just for who we are. We, we're afraid, we're, we're driven by fears that we're not good enough, that we won't be protected, that we won't be cared for, and we run around allowing things to husband us that are earthly. And Christ comes to this woman as he has come to me as the seventh husband, the perfect husband. Seven in the Bible is the number for perfection. And he comes as that seventh husband, and he meets her in that place. He meets me in that place, in a place that makes me want to tell the story of my failures and say, you know what? Jesus, he never named her husbands. Did you notice that? He never named them. And I don't have to name mine, and you don't have to name yours. You can if you want, and I can if I want, but it's not about that. The point is, there have been many. <laughs> That's the point. But he comes in as the seventh husband, just to love her with radical acceptance. I, I can run into this room tonight and say, I've met a man who knows everything I've ever done, and he loves me, and he wants to drink from my life. <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> I've met a man who knows everything about me, and he wants to drink from my life. He is satisfied in my attention and my acceptance of him and my devotion and affection for him. Jesus doesn't name our husbands, but Satan does. Oh, he loves to name our husbands. Satan, Satan comes as the accuser to intensify our sin, to rub it in. Jesus comes as the Savior to take away our sin, to rub it out. That's what kind of Savior he is. Which voice has your attention? The voice of the accuser? naming your husbands, pointing out your failures, or the voice of the Savior that comes to you with radical acceptance. What do you think you're hiding? He sees it already, and he hasn't run away, and he's not going to. There is a, a beautiful scripture that, uh, that I'd love to share with you, just about transferring our identity from these egos and personas that we try and create, and we try and make sure other people see us in the way that we would like them to see us, and we project these, these egos onto other people. And once you've met that seventh husband, once you've 
had his attention on you for long enough to know his radical acceptance. This could be your story. From Galatians 2. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a pretender. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. It's like the old persona no longer lives. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or even have your good opinion. And I'm no longer even driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living now is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back on to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God. This is what made her abandon her cloak of shame, that woman at the well, and run headlong into the place where she had been most humiliated, shouting out that she'd met a man that knew everything she'd done and loved her anyway. This is what makes me stand up and say, Whatever you think you know about me, I want you, to, I want you to know for a fact that I've been husbanded by illegitimate husbands, that I have followed after things that are false, that I've put on things, that I've tried to be someone, and that I'm not going to do it anymore. That I have found a love that accepts me when I just do nothing. When I literally arrive and sit on the couch with Jesus, he seems to be okay with that. And he seems to be happy to know me for who I am. The Bible is, uh, what I love about it is it's like rich. It's like a, a diamond mine that the more you dig, the more you find. There's just so many layers to it intentionally because it's woven together by the Spirit of God. And one of the details that ah, I'm sure Jesus would have been aware, in fact, as I read it, he definitely was aware that he's sitting at Jacob's well, offering a different drink of his life. Now, if you know anything about Jacob, Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Israel. No, Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob was literally a hustler from the day he was born. His name literally means to grasp the heel which is a metaphor for a deceiver because he was born holding onto his brother's heel. And for the rest of his life, every single thing that came to, to Jacob, he had to fight for, hustle for, manipulate for, strive for. From the moments he was born, his very birth, he had to strive, manipulate, hustle. Then he wanted a birthright and he had to hustle for that. And then he wanted a blessing from his father and he had to manipulate and deceive and hustle for that. And then he went to a different land and he wanted a wife and he, was, he had to deceive and manipulate and hustle for that. And then he wanted to build up his flocks and he had to deceive and manipulate and hustle. Then he meets God himself and guess what? He has to wrestle and hustle for a blessing from God. 
His whole life is about the hustle and about the striving. And Jesus sits at the well, and he looks there, and he looks at the woman, and he says, the water from Jacob's well doesn't satisfy you, does it? (laughs) I have different water. If you drink from me, you will be eternally satisfied. You won't have to live the hustle anymore. You won't have to live the striving, the manipulation. You won't have to live that life. You won't have to pretend. You won't have to work for every single thing. You're going to get love and value and attention and acceptance permanently just from me. We want to be sisters, girls, women, mothers that accept others this way. A radical acceptance. That when we look at our husbands and our friends and our kids and the people in our community, we can see through the layers and the mistakes and we can accept them radically just for who they are. Acceptance doesn't have to mean approval. Acceptance doesn't have to mean approval. But we need acceptance. People need acceptance. This is the pace of love. Slowing down long enough to hear what someone's really saying. Then thirdly, we need to take the time to touch. The time for affection. As Jesus longed to to just tilt her chin so that she could look in his eyes. And as they stood there looking at each other, just like, just the, the affection flowing between the two of them as her brain just clicked over, like, could it be? Could it be? What would it mean if it was? Oh my gosh, what has just happened? And him just looking at her, watching those cogs turn and thinking, I can't believe I've done it. The moment has come. I've revealed myself and I really hope she accepts me. Just that affection in that moment. And his disciples looking at this and being like, oh, what is going on? I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to interrupt. (laughs) Just unrestrained affection. There's a holding nothing back. He has revealed his full self to her. Everything about himself he's revealed to her. He's seen everything about her. And there's just this affection, this drinking of each other. And it's a beautiful moment. There is a pace to this, right? There's a pace to touch. We, we know that it's dangerous to touch things that are moving too fast, to touch cars that are moving, touch treadmills that are moving too fast, <laughs> to touch merry-go-rounds that are moving too fast. We get hurt. And when we're moving too fast, when people reach out to touch us, they get hurt. When others are moving too fast and we reach out to touch them, we get hurt. There's a pace to love. There's a pace to getting touched and it being okay, us being ready for it. I wrote this more recently. Having gone through the upheaval of the garden, (laughs) uh, having gone through the time to let Jesus put his attention on me and watch me long, long enough so that things start falling off. It's a little bit different to recoiling at the touch of a daughter who loves me and is asking me if I'm okay. See, I, I wrote this. I feel less defensive and yet less in danger than I've been, than I've ever been. I'm like a chick that has been living in the shell for so long Connection has been exhausting, even with those closest to me. Finally, 
I've broken through the shell. There's still parts of it sticking to my feathers, but my overarching disposition is one of openness. Connection is easier. I'm less defensive, but I don't feel less protected. When Richard holds my hand unexpectedly, I'm available. When I'm touched unexpectedly, I'm available. I'm praying for this for all of us as a sisterhood and as women in this community that we would slow down long enough to let love put its attention on us, let God put his attention on us, to recognize his radical acceptance, to feel his affection, and to be able to go out into the world as, as women who see others, who can walk out and say saubona as a, as a general greeting, because it's truly what we mean when we say hello. That we can look at others and say, I see you. I see you. I've taken time. I've prepared for this moment. I'm prepared even for the unexpected because I'm walking at the pace of the I am and walking in the pace of the present. And so the unexpected is not a a jar that brings me to reality because I was already living in reality.